0: Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night, and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com.
1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just
0: $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin. John Lennon first met Paul McCartney in 1957 and the Beatles actively released music between 1962 to 1970. So when you look at Beatle history, which year has had the greatest impact on the group? And today we're going to look at 1980. We think that is the year that had the greatest impact on how we understand the Beatles today. It has everything to do with 1980. And, uh, you know, I think broadly speaking, you know, to be a Beatles fan in 1979 versus being a Beatles fan in 1981, they are two totally different situations.
1: Absolutely. I think everything fundamentally changed in 1980 in terms of just uh, where the Beatles where culturally uh, and how the public uh, reacted to them related to them
0: yeah and you know we're going to have a little recap first of the uh, where we stand the state of affairs in 1979 and then we'll kind of walk through 1980 and look at what everybody was doing at that time so to recap at the end of the 70s you know let's start with Ringo because in the late 70s it wasn't really a a good time for Ringo you know he'd uh, his musical career—he was initially the most successful Beatle, wasn't he, in the charts? But he was now at a low point.
1: Yeah, he'd, he'd uh, straight out of the traps. Uh, post-split, he was outselling uh, Lennon. He was outselling McCartney in terms of uh, singles. He had eight top ten hits, two number one singles. You know, Lennon at one point was joking with Ringo, perhaps you could write me a hit. <laughs> and so he'd played Ringo the Fourth in nineteen seventy seven. That had been a big flop. He
0: switched from Atlantic records to a CBS subsidiary. He put out the Bad Boy album. That was another flop. It only got to 129.
1: Terrible record.
0: I have to admit, I've never listened to Bad Boy. Do I need to?
1: No, I know we like to send people back to the records, but <laughs> that's, that's not a destination anyone need visit.
0: And, um, you know, it failed to hit the charts in the UK. It only got to 129 in the US. And, you know, it's... The the 70s was an interesting period. The Beatles had been synonymous with success, and now we're kind of getting to see the reality of the situation. And then by 1979, Ringo had actually become quite unwell. In April 79, he he went into hospital in Monte Carlo uh, for a uh, surgical procedure on his uh, on his intestines, which was very serious apparently, and that's based on a lifetime of medical illnesses. Yeah. Um, however, a few weeks later, he did manage to reach one of the kind of highlights in 1979, which was Eric Clapton's wedding.
1: Yes. Yeah, so this is one of those uh, sort of legendary almost reunions. So this was Eric Clapton marrying uh, Patty Boyd, who had been George Harrison's uh, first wife, and. Uh, He had a band, as you would if you were Eric Clapton, (laughs) and uh, the invites to the wedding uh, went out to Paul, to George, to Ringo, not to John. No. Um, And there's a little bit of confusion as to to why that was the case. Um, uh, Eric says he just forgot. Yeah. Um, Maybe it was just Lennon had been off the scene for a while by that stage. Wasn't really. He was in a different country. He was in a different headspace, you know, Um, but Lennon did say afterwards if he'd been invited he would have come. But that... that, So so at that wedding the wedding band at one point included uh, Paul, George and And Ringo. Ringo.
0: And so if John had been there what what could have been? And there's some very charming photos of those that day with um, Paul, George and Ringo with Lonnie Donaghan. Lonnie standing in. (laughs) Standing in for John. Um, So they managed to make it to that wedding but apparently they were terrible. Um, And then towards the end of the year a fire destroys Ringo's home and he loses... In, in Hollywood he loses a load of Beatles memorabilia um, and he's still in the throes of addiction at this point
1: Yes, so, I mean at this point uh, you know, in, in, in the mid-70s uh, Ringo was hanging out with Harry Nilsson, with uh, Keith Moon um, Alice Cooper, Mickey Dolenz mm. uh, they called themselves the Hollywood vampires, like vampires. Yeah. and uh, he, he made the comment we weren't musicians dabbling in drugs and alcohol we were junkies dabbling in music.
0: Yeah, and I saw a clip recently of uh Ringo and Keith Moon being phenomenally drunk and it's, you know, they're being funny and charming but it's deeply sad particularly yeah. as, you know, Keith Moon was only 32 when he died in 1978. So, you know, it's uh, I think as the years go by, what seemed at the time to be Incredible hijinks. Amusing
1: rock and roll Mm. behavior. You now kind of
0: look back and think, you know, Ringo has said he lost years of his life. He just didn't know what was going on. So by the time we get to the end of 79, Ringo is not in a good place commercially, critically and in in terms of his his health. What's George up to?
1: George, uh, again, George started off well in the 70s. You got All Things Must Pass, Concert for Bangladesh. Um, uh, the 74 tour of America is probably the downturn for him Uh, he's got laryngitis, the tour is very badly received Um, sort of a very infamous uh, takedown in Rolling Stone uh, that he he, he was always quite bitter about Um, so his his commercial stock is on the slide Uh, extra texture is is not uh, regarded well doesn't sell well but he had started to make a little bit of a comeback he formed his own record label signed up uh with uh warner brothers after a bit of a false start with a and couple of hit singles in america in 76 this song crackerbock palace interestingly not charting in in uh, the uk mm. at all very much now focused on uh on the U.S. Uh, market, he's appearing on Saturday Night Live. Yep. He's appearing on Soul Train. Um, so that that period, sort of '76, is a little bit of a, an upward swing, but certainly nothing like uh, the highlights of of the early '70s. And his career sort of drifting slightly towards the end of the decade. 1979, he's got that uh, eponymous album, George Harrison. Very commercial, poppy sound. Yeah, um, he has a producer in. Uh, yeah, he's got Russ uh, Tidelman in, and the idea is clearly uh, we're, we're going to try and get him a hit in mm. the American market. And it, 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 I never really, you know, hit top 20 hit uh, with the album, uh, top 20 hit with the single Blow Away, but it just doesn't really uh, uh, click. Yes. Um, so... Uh, and I think with hindsight, I think you can say that's really the beginning of his sort of retreat. Yes. He's less and less interested in um, the music business. He's got other interests. He's uh, hanging out with Formula One racing drivers. Well, the other He's big hi- business interest in 79 is? Is the Python. Python. Uh, so he, he funds Life of Brian. That leads to the formation of handmade films eventually. So he's, he's got other interests. Yeah, And if you were
0: to probably meet George Harrison at the end of 1979, he'd probably say he's happy. He's got a new son. Yep. He's in a stable marriage. Um, you know, the fact that Blow Away doesn't become a mega hit single means, you know, it, it, it probably wouldn't have troubled him because he didn't feel the desire or the need to do the legwork that McCartney did of interviews, no. promo, publicity, no. touring, any of that stuff. You
1: really you really get the sense that, that, that he doesn't have that ambition anymore, if, yeah. you know, and, and sort of, it, it, it's, it's well known, he is the one that right from the beginning of the 60s fell out of love with being a Beatle first. yes. You know, he likes... He doesn't like being famous. He doesn't like being a rock star. He likes everything that comes with it. You know, he likes the money, the cars. The other stuff. The other stuff. Mm. Uh, But, you know, it's a hard life.
0: (laughs) So then we get on to um, Paul McCartney. Do we really need to talk about Paul's 70s? How long have we got? (laughs) There could be a podcast in themselves. No, please. No, all right, fair enough. But obviously, uh, you know... The wings build by the mid seventies is you know he he's managed to get back on top with, Band on the Run, Venus and Mars, Wings at the Speed of Sound, and the associated Wings Over the World tour. Towards the end of the seventies though you know there's a there's a bit of a retreat. Um, James uh, McCartney is born at the end of nineteen seventy seven, and that kind of curtails touring a little bit because i think there were plans to tour um before they realized that uh, james was coming along um he put out the london town wings put out the london town album in 1978 and then in 78 they were down to a trio so they re-expanded to a five piece again for the last lineup of wings with um holly and juber joining in on uh drums and guitar they were two excellent session players so that kind of last incarnation of wings which if we ever get a back-to-the-egg reissue, we might talk about again. But that was a very strong version of Wings, and because they were session players, they were potentially there for the long term. There wasn't any plan that Wings were going anywhere. They were brought in as equal partners. Um, Paul re-signed to Columbia Records in the US for 1979, so there was this big commercial push for his first album on Columbia in the US, which was Back to the Egg. And Back to the Egg, it just doesn't... He starts to kind of slip out of the the kind of the, the culture for a bit he's it doesn't have any breakthrough hit there's, you can no. pick up any Paul McCartney album from the 70s and if you're a very casual fan you'll recognize a yeah. song or two yeah. i think if you're a casual paul mccartney fan you look at the back of back to the egg there's not really going to be anything you recognize particularly no.
1: i mean the single from that lineup was uh, good night tonight yeah which doesn't appear on the album yeah um, and i think at this stage Uh, With hindsight, McCartney doesn't talk particularly favorably about Back to the Egg. I mean, I personally, uh, and I know you... you I love Back to the Egg. I love Back to the Egg as well. I think it's one of his strongest uh, uh, solo albums. But he seems to sort of lose a little bit of confidence maybe um, at that stage. I think that's my my take on it anyway. Um, The interesting thing is that final tour, that final Wings UK tour, he's starting to reintroduce... Well, Beatles song.
0: That is the thing. So he does get back on the road. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, he'd finished the mega, you know, proving himself World tour in 76. He had been, you know, he's not shy about getting back onto the road and he eventually gets back on the road in the UK at the end of 79. And he's playing modest enough venues, but mm-hmm. they're they're full houses. Um, he's got a span of songs. He's playing, you know, things like Hot as Sun from the very first McCartney album. He's coming on stage and opening with Gotta Get You Into My Life with a horn section. Um, you know the, the 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 band is ready to go for the next phase of touring in 1980, which we'll t- touch yeah. upon in a second. But you know he's he's got a new version of Wings, he's got a set list, he's got a new album, he's he's figuring out what's uh, what's going on, and so he finishes the year uh, playing the concerts for the people of Campuchia. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: and you know that gives you an idea of what a 1980s Paul McCartney tour would have looked like.
1: Yes. Um. It's a, There are some very good uh, bootlegs. I mean, I think those tours, some of those concerts were recorded. So, as you yeah. say, if there's a box set for Back to the Egg, that, that's sort of what we're. Yeah, and he also plays
0: Glasgow on that tour where the live version of Coming Up is recorded, yes. and that's in the, right at the end of '79 as well. Yeah. So he's just doing what he's doing, but Wings don't look like they're going anywhere.
1: No, I mean, uh, wing, Wings are still a functioning band, and this is the latest incarnation. And uh, uh, can we talk a little bit about the Campuchia concert? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm old enough to remember this being uh, uh, trailed, uh, uh, the build up uh, to this. <laughs> so, for, for people that don't know, it was a series of concerts acro- in London across a number of days. So, you had people like the Pretenders, you had the Queen, you had uh, The Who? The Who, Elvis the Glenn, Elvis Attractions. Costello. Um, a rock pile with Robert Plant with Robert Plant. Up. Yeah. So th- there was a series of concerts to raise money for, I suppose, th- the race is the Boat People mm-hmm. uh, from Kampuchea. These are refugees fleeing from uh, Cambodia, Kampuchea uh, and um, I am I am old enough to remember. I don't remember the concerts. I remember Blue Peter having an appeal at the same time well, for the go. same charity. Um, so uh, th- th- this was something that the the UN. Uh, I think Kurt Valtheim was the, uh, the the Secretary General and he had earlier in the year he had been talking about uh, you know if the Beatles could get back together uh, that would be great and we could raise lots of money and there was a sort of build up of pressure there to the extent that there were sort of newspaper headlines uh, mm. saying the Beatles are getting back together again they're going to be a concert, it's going to be a concert um, in fact what we had with these concerts in, in, in London um, Graham Thompson in his biography uh, behind the locked door of George Harrison, says that George and Ringo were on board, not for a reunion, but to appear mm-hmm. uh, at the concert. Now I've not read that anywhere else. Yes. Um, given, you know, I, I can see Ringo being prepared to to, to step up and uh, mm-hmm. come on stage with with Paul. Uh, I I don't know about George and his state of mind at that time, but Thompson is very clear. But when the publicity started to be around the lines of "It's the Beatles, it's the Beatles," he says they both sort of backtracked. Yeah. Um, Lennon, I think, uh, we talk a little bit about where Lennon was in in the late seventies, but I don't think he was ever uh, really on board. But I do recall would either have been the NME or Melody Maker doing a little review of the various concerts, including the Wings, the final one, and being very scathing about the fact that you know uh, we all were waiting for somebody to come on but you know I think Billy Connolly was the compere and he was teasing the audience mm. by saying oh, I don't want to get you excited <laughs> but I've just seen the Apple Jacks backstage and, um, but the enemy very critical you know at the end of the night no sign of a, and I yeah. think they talk about you know a, a thin-lipped pointy-nosed cattle farmer with his Japanese wife was a no-show I mean a very kind of scathing mean, mean uh, uh, take on that but uh, Lennon at that stage I, I don't think he was in a place where he would have been interested. Um,
0: but what Paul did have in his back pocket at the end of 79 was the McCartney 2 album. Yeah. Which he had recorded in August on his own, on a few, about a three week break from from general Wings activity. And there'd been a clue at the end of 79 about what was coming because Wonderful Christmas Time had made its debut. Yeah. Uh, which is you know recorded as part of the McCartney 2 sessions. It comes out as a single not credited to Wings but has wings in the video. In the video yeah, And uh, so it's kind of seen as a kind of a standalone one-off novelty. And so it's not really known yet that he's got more of that kind of... <laughs> in the can. Yes, single, uh, one-man band madness in the can. So for John Lennon, the end of 1979, people have just assumed that he's retired.
1: Yes, uh, I mean, he's been off the scene really since 75, 76. Um, he made a very public announcement in 1977 saying, that's it, we're we're just going to take some time uh, to ourselves. Uh, that followed the birth of uh, Sean Lennon in 1975. Um, from that point on, he really, he appears on Ringo's 1976 album, Rotogravure. Again, mm-hmm. not a great album. Uh, there's a track, uh, Cooking in the Kitchen of Love, which is a very kind of perfunctory uh, Lennon song, uh, just the kind of thing you imagine he might write and give away. Uh, to Ringo, but that's his last appearance yeah. of the 70s in a recording studio he's dabbled with bits and pieces um, he famously also went through that kind of uh, lost weekend period where he too is hanging out with Keith Moon, and Harry Nilsson, he had the good sense to, to get back yeah. uh, off, uh, back away from that and um, he sort of returns to domestic life with Yoko the interesting thing is just before he retreats He's involved in three number one hit singles. Yeah, and that's in, kind of in, in the states forgotten about yeah. in a way. so he sort of, in one sense, he exited on a high. His mm. career had, after the sort of high points of Plastic Ono Band and Imagine, really his career bit of a wobble. A bit of a wobble, to put it mildly. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm very uh, unimpressed by anything that you know. There's one or two songs mm-hmm. uh, to pad out at greatest hits, but sometime in New York City. Mind Games is week. Walls and Bridges, he talks about that as being kind of hack work. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever gets you through the night. Number one. Number one single uh, featuring Elton John. Yeah. That leads to uh, him appearing on stage Thanksgiving with Elton John. They do uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which Elton John has, I think, just released. Yeah, same Num- week. Number one single. With John on guitar. There's uh, uh, a little reggae section in the middle, and that's uh, Lennon uh, doing that. Uh, the B-side of that is a cover of One Day at a Time, uh, and I think Lennon plays on that as well. Third, number one, David Bowie fame, yeah. which is a co-write. Yeah. Um, and uh, so he's he's involved in three US number one singles and then just buys out. And they're kind of, I mean, uh,
0: you could argue Elton, John and David Bowie are trying to ride in the slipstream of John Lennon and the Beatle, or it could look the other way that these are guys, you know.
1: Helping out uh, kind of. An old legend. An old legend. I think so. I mean, that, that kind of helping out an old legend. Like, uh, <laughs>
0: like the Smiths and Sandy Shaw. Or, or the
1: Pet Shop Boys <laughs> and uh, Dusty Springfield. Yes, uh, that's Tom exactly Mennon what it's Is like. Dusty Springfield to David Bowie's I've been Pet saying Shop it for boys. years, yes. <laughs>
0: um, but he does have this marked withdrawal. But, you know, at the end of 79, he meets Ringo. He gives him a song. Life yep. begins at 40 uh, for whatever Ringo's about to do next. and uh, And then generally speaking... Uh, something you pointed out to me is that across Christmas 1979 uh, the BBC show a load of Beatles films.
1: Yes, so I, I don't know whether that links into the the, the, the sort of pre-concert for Campuchia uh, mm. kind of, uh, oh a reunion and there was a little bit of an interest in in the Beatles and I suppose you're coming up to the anniversary of well, 10 also, years It's an end of a decade It's thing. the end of a decade yeah. uh, the, the 60s very much the Beatles decade, the 70s had been something else entirely but there's a little bit of nostalgia coming in, but yes, yes. They, they, so they show all of the films plus uh, uh, Shea Stadium yeah. gets, it gets an airing. So
0: at the end of 1979, as it turns into 1980, that is the state of affairs. So let's get into 1980 and have a walk through that. The first big thing that's supposed to happen in 1980 is that Paul is due to go and play some uh, gigs in japan and the plan had been that wings would tour japan and there was rough plans in place that there would be a wings tour probably of north america later that same year and then maybe by the end of the year uh, back to europe uh, for another round and so uh, the plan was to play 11 concerts in japan Uh, over a hundred thousand tickets had been sold the concerts were due to start on the 21st of january 1980 And end on the 2nd of February 1980 across five venues in three cities and ending in the Budokan, Tokyo, where the Beatles had played just 13 and a half years earlier. And uh, so at the start of the year, um, before they fly out on the 16th of January, Paul calls the Dakota uh, on the 12th of January.
1: Yeah, so Paul and Linda have, and and the kids have flown to New York and uh, Paul calls Dakota to speak to John. And Um, then what happens? Yoko intercepts the call. This is going to be a recurring um, theme. This is in going to 19-18. be a recurring theme. So, my my understanding is that prior to this, Paul had last spoken to John uh, in around 1976, which is around the time of the Saturday Night Live spoof. Yes, rumors, Let's get the Beatles yeah. back together again. Um, so, Yoko intercepts the call. Paul tells her, "You know, I'm on. I'm on my way to Japan, and I have some quote unquote dynamite weed." Um, <laughs> and uh, he wants to come over and Yoko basically is saying it's not happening Yeah, he doesn't get to speak to John but before the call ends he tells Yoko that they're going to Tokyo and they're staying in the Okura Hotel mm-hmm. um, I don't know anything about this hotel except mm. that it was John and Yoko's favourite hotel
0: yeah and John and Yoko had done travelling in the late 70s and they'd been to Japan and they did uh, John had played piano in a hotel yeah. bar in Japan yeah uh,
1: so f- they, they, they uh, stayed, had stayed in this hotel at least four times now there, there is I'm not sure if there's, there's a story about uh, the room that they stay in had its own private elevator yeah and some couple Elderly couple get into this lift by mistake, go up accidentally to the <laughs> floor. The door opens, and John is sitting playing the guitar. Right. So they're saying this is the, this is the these are the last people to see John Lennon playing, <laughs> you know, a, a kind of impromptu concert. But anyway, they're 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 Yoko reportedly. I mean, the rumor is you know Yoko not happy about that, this. Yeah, the, the the good vibes of this hotel are going to be spoiled by Paul and Linda.
0: So then that leads to that's the twelfth of January, the sixteenth of January. Paul and the whole entourage, the family, and Wings, they arrive in Tokyo. And when they get to customs, they find some, quote-unquote, dynamite weed. full eight ounces of dynamite weed. A full half pound of butter full of weed (laughs) in Paul's suitcase. And, you know, in in later years, he might have been a bit more lighthearted about it, but he describes (laughs) that they just opened the bag and it's just sitting there.
1: Yeah, there appears to have been no attempt... Uh, to hide this, sort of, you know, wrap it up in a sock or something. I mean, it's just sitting on the top of the that suitcase. To do it. <laughs> um
0: Yes. Uh, so he um, gets arrested immediately and uh, because he has this large block of drugs in his bag. And uh, apparently, looking back at the time, the stories of the time say it had roughly a £5,000 street value. Ready to pop the question? Yeah, Although I don't know how true that is, which would be about 30,000 euros in today's money of, um, uh, of dynamite weed in so his bag.
1: And, and, and his immediate defense is it was for my own personal consumption, yeah. all 30,000 pounds worth of the dynamite weed.
0: Quite possible, knowing how uh, well,
1: bleary-eyed he was at yes, the time. In, in the 70s, that's entirely possible. Um,
0: but he is arrested and he's put in jail where he spends the next uh, eight nights, isn't it? Yeah. And immediately the, the tour is cancelled. 100,000 tickets gone. And, uh, you know, there are rumours that develop after time that somehow Yoko is involved in this arrest. Yes. And I think they are just rumours. They are and just rumours. They're probably and I think fed on the anti-Yoko sentiment that exactly. permeates our culture Paul,
1: unfairly. Paul has been very quick to, to say he doesn't he doesn't believe any of that. But yes. um, one thing, this is the first time that Paul McCartney has been behind bars since... Nineteen sixty. Oh, yes, in Hamburg, <laughs> when they set fire to allegedly set fire to the Bambi Kino by lighting a uh, by lighting a condom that's on, quite on, a, on, on the wall. It's quite a rap sheet he's got. <laughs> so, so uh, you, you know, you've you've got the East uh, John Eastman, his brother-in-law is flying to Tokyo. There's a whole sort of uh, uh, diplomatic know, diplomatic yeah. uh, incident here because you, you know the the, the British Consul is involved. This is a top mm-hmm. news story. This is going on for several days. Yes. The story is Paul McCartney faces seven years uh, in, a, in a Japanese prison. They're looking, clearly the authorities are looking for some way to defuse this and they're yes. saying, well, he hadn't passed through customs, so maybe we could raise the argument that uh, you know he hadn't quite landed or we could just deport him. Yep. And there's a lot of sort of frantic uh, 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 behind the scenes activity. One Uh, uh, thing is there was a death as a result of this Oh, there was a fan called Kenneth Lambert and Kenneth Lambert uh, was shot dead by police at Miami airport when he turned up with a gun trying to get on a plane uh, to go and rescue Paul in Tokyo my goodness so this is a kind of uh, you know the craziness that of the Beatles years still kind of hanging around. There is um, bad mojo in the air. There is bad mojo uh, kicking around.
0: Okay. And so 16th he's arrested. Uh, he's there for eight days. There's a big unknown quantity about, you know, what's going to happen to him. Is he staying? Is he going? What deal is going to be cut? After five days, Wings leave. Yeah. Uh, the other members of Wings leave. Denny Lane heads to the south of France <laughs> and does a deal for a solo record, which you know, kind of comes back to it destroy the relationship yeah, between... Paul,
1: Paul, extremely unhappy yeah. uh, about this.
0: And uh, five days into incarceration, there's a telegram
1: of support, isn't there? Yeah, from, from George, Olivia... And Danny, it's great say, that you know, that's what it takes for yeah. George to yeah, give yeah, Paul a bit thumbs of a, up. Well, now that now you've been now you've had your five nights in jail,
0: <laughs> now that you're in prison,
1: yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'm I'll, happy to uh, be your mate. <laughs> exactly, that
0: makes me smile. Famously, George or, or Paul says that um, you know these were the first nights he had ever spent apart from Linda since 1969. Yeah, and you know again he talks about it in the Wingspan documentary in whatever that was 2001, where he, he, in his Paul manner casts a rosy glow on well you know i tried to get on with the other prisoners and i tried to sing songs and we had jokes but i didn't really know what was happening on the outside and he writes a book he does Doesn't he?
1: or is, is it in prison or when he comes out of prison he's, when he comes out of prison he he kind of commits this uh, uh, to writing uh, with his his his, his uh, sort of a diary mm. uh, which is called uh japanese jailbird there you go <sighs> um, you know a little subtle uh, but he's
0: never released you know. it
1: but he's apparently locked it in a vault well, we're looking forward to seeing that someday. in in fifty years time. In fifty years when time, he he um, is unwell. In, in terms <laughs> of in terms of uh, uh, sort of the rumours, there's Howie Casey, yeah, who is a musician that was sort of goes all the way back uh, to sort of um, Liverpool. Liverpool. He, he's the musician that said, uh, "Don't bring the Beatles to Hamburg; they're a terrible <laughs> band; they're they're no good." But he was he was actually touring as part of the horn section in mm. Wings, and his take on this is that Paul was taking the rap for Linda. Yes. That this was actually, that Linda was the one who was sort of most devoted to the dynamite weed, mm. even more so than Paul, and that it was her suitcase and that it was, she had just uh, slipped this into the suitcase. Yes. Um, and, and that's his take on it. Steve Holly. Yeah. Uh, his take is that he thinks that possibly consciously or subconsciously, Paul wanted to scupper the tour. Yeah. Um, that he hadn't been particularly enamored with the the live band and the live performances mm-hmm. and was really kind of growing tired of the wings uh, the band set up. Yeah. And I suppose that might uh, at least the growing tired aspect might tie in with the uh, uh, McCartney 2 having been recorded.
0: But there's also the notion that Paul just didn't get stopped at customs.
1: Yeah, you know he's Paul McCartney. Well, this was this was Ringo's take. Was sort of you know you you have got to be careful, and it was stupid. I mean he he's much less sympathetic. He's just saying, well, it was a stupid thing t- to do. Yes. And the other little f- interesting footnote is that normally you would have insurance, uh, tour insurance against you know all of these various yes. cancellations only. Due to an administrative oversight, the insurance uh, had lapsed. Right. Uh, so, so this was completely uh, absent, and uh, all those ticket cancellations um, had to be paid for. Had to be paid for, Good otherwise Lord. And through insurance. So.
0: Uh, and so that one incident of. Having the weed, getting arrested, means that Wings will never play live again. Yeah. So there's never another Wings concert after that. And as you said, Denny Lane had been the stalwart in Wings since 1971. Goes off and cuts a deal for a solo record and reacts yeah, I, on that a little later in the I, year. I
1: think that was really the final straw for Denny Lane because what what you have to Denny still
0: stays in the picture. He's yeah, he, they're still there, and I mean
1: Wings are still kind of floating around in the background. Yeah. But what, what what you have to remember is, um, uh, Denny Lane. Holly Juber—they're not getting money from songwriting. No, so it's the live work is is, yeah. is what's. And I think it—I think it's Lane and Steve Holly go off and do a little mini tour in the UK of, of their own, play a few gigs, just right. to get some money. Well, you think this is a hugely successful. Uh, rock band, and uh, the guitarist and the drummer are going to have to go out and play some gigs just to get some.
0: As a side point, uh, uh, you know, the year we're recording this, twenty nineteen, there have been some gigs this year where Lane, Holly, and Juber from yeah. that last lineup Which. of Wings have been playing back to the egg material at fan conventions. Yeah, the
1: Chicago Beatles fest, and it yeah.
0: looks fantastic. Yeah. I, I think a tour of that—it's uh, well, it's a wonder a Wings tour from you know everybody who used to be near a band is, is touring in yeah. some capacity. That there hasn't been an X Wings tour. of
1: I thought you were going to say uh, uh, we should go on. Uh, (laughs) Go to to the the Chicago Beatles Beatles Fest Fest next year. We'll we'll Mm -hmm. see. If if
0: nothing is real budget, we'll stretch to that. Um, So that takes up an awful lot of January. And so Paul is back in the UK, deported from uh, Japan at the end of the month. And he does make an appearance at the end of the month on This Is Your Life for George Martin. Yes. Um, I'm not sure whether that was recorded before the arrest or nope, after that the that
1: arrest. No, was, that was, uh, I think that was after. A live thing. That was a live that thing. That was his first. Yep, his, his reappearance. Uh, and, and the other interesting aspect there is they asked George Harrison to do it, and he said no. Oh, okay. And he was going on holiday. That's so George. Not even him. a filmed insert. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, again, and he's here tonight.
0: And he's here <laughs> tonight. it so wasn't even
1: one of those. <laughs> not even one of those. Um, <laughs> so, um, And
0: actually, Paul had been on. There's a great footage, another sidebar of, Paul and Wings on This Is Your Life years earlier. I think it's John Conti's. This Is Your Life. Yeah. And uh, they're in Abbey Road and it's a filmed insert from Abbey Road that he does for This Is Your Life.
1: Well George George is prepared to turn up for racing drivers and things like that on there This Is Your Life but not for George Martin.
0: There you go that's priorities for you. So a very busy January. So even January alone is enough to turn uh, the world of Wings on its head. In February Ringo starts production on his latest movie uh, called Caveman yep. which uh, you know, I always threaten someday we will do a podcast called The Films of Ringo Starr and Caveman will, will play a part of that. I've tried to watch sections of Caveman um, I've never seen any of it It's an open, largest set of inverted commas in the ever. <laughs> Comedy closed, largest inverted commas in the world ever um, but it is important for one uh, issue which is he meets Barbara Bach yes. on set and um, you know Barbara goes on to be his wife and they are still happily married to this day um, it's it's an odd film and it's no dialogue it's got very little dialogue yeah. and it's set in prehistoric times and all sorts of capers happen. Dennis Quaid in that uh, possibly. It's, yeah. it's, it's been a while. Um, uh, you know. I,
1: think, I think Dennis Quaid possibly also not a good influence. Ringo and Dennis Quaid hanging out together. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: Well, he's still, um, you know, uh, uh, we'll come back to this again later on. Ringo and Barbara are both uh, f- you know, fond of a drink. Yes. They are alcoholics and have addiction issues at this point in time. Um, so then as the year progresses in March, uh, I think March is when George starts to work his own Friar Park studios on his next solo album.
1: Yeah, so he's he's uh still contracted to uh to Warner Brothers, uh has another album to deliver and he starts the sessions for that next uh that next album. Yeah. Uh sort of fairly sporadically he'll work on that uh over, over the next uh year, effectively.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's it's um it's interesting that you know George's state where he lived, Friar Park. You know, beautiful, whenever we see it in any of the George documentaries, it's a mm-hmm. beautiful part of the world. And to have his own studios, that uh, it's tantalizing to think about what is hanging around in the Friar Park
1: archives. Yes. I mean, I, I think by all accounts, it's, it's a very extensive uh, archive yeah. and uh, frustratingly little, uh, yes. I, I think, has, has has emerged.
0: Well, another
1: side point, Early
0: Takes Volume 1 yeah. is possibly my favorite George Harrison album, it's, On Certain Days.
1: Yes, it's a fantastic album. It's that stripped back yes. uh, uh, takes on, on, on those sort of slightly overproduced uh, all things must pass. Yeah, so it, uh, just amazing. Yeah. Well, anyway,
0: apparently there is a, a an archivist uh, in FP shot uh, going through the George Harrison archive. So maybe in the next couple of years, mm. if we get to the fiftieth anniversary next year of All Things Must Pass, it
1: is. And, and I mean, he's work and he's working with the usual kind of crew of musicians. So he's got Ray Cooper. he yeah. he's he, uh, the, these are the people he regularly works with. That all, all kind of live in the same. Area. This is kind of Henley on Thames mafia. So yep. like members of Traffic and Joe Brown and these these people, Ray Cooper are all kind of just. It's it's uh, very different from the way McCartney's been working with Wings.
0: And uh, another thing that happens in March that you pointed out is that there's a, an auction in Sotheby's.
1: Yeah, this is this is a, a, a really it's a pop memorabilia auction, third uh, of March uh, in London, and it's really the. First, or one of the first of its kind, and there's a few little items uh, cropping up uh, there, Beatles-related items, and you think this is this is the start. Yes. Ten years on, this is the start of that whole uh, sort of industry yes. of of memorabilia, everything that they've worn, that they've touched. Yeah. That whole uh,
0: hard rock cafe yeah, kind of yeah thing. is
1: starting is starting to emerge yeah. uh, there. And it's yeah, it's interesting
0: because I certainly remember being a music fan in the '80s that these. Very much became a a thing, you know, and they'd, they'd appear on the news. There's yeah. another rock and roll memorabilia yeah. auction. Uh, I remember it kind of culminated in Elton John. Do you remember this? this is yet? His entire wardrobe. He 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 said he basically um, sold off his entire house full of archival material about 1988, and mm. it was a big kind of three or four days Sotheby's thing. So this definitely becomes a thing, and there's actually. Um, A few years later in 83, 84, the host of Saturday Night Live is none other than Ringo Starr. Mm -hmm. We might talk more about Saturday Night Live someday, but the the opening sketch on the show is set in an auction house and the next lot to be wheeled on is Ringo Starr and we're going to auction this genuine piece of Beatles memorabilia.
1: And no one bids? Is that the... Uh, uh, that could be the joke, yes. Yeah. I, I it's with Martin Short. It's hard to find the joke. <laughs> yeah, that's right, actually. Martin, He's the auctioneer. That's right, he is so the auctioneer. So it's probably not a very funny Martin stuff. Short,
0: who has done sketches with many, with 50% of the Beatles. Yeah. Um, None of them... Fun. We love Martin Short. I love we Martin
1: don't Martin love Martin Short. Martin this Martin is one of
0: the things that uh, myself and Stephen disagree with on quite... Uh, Quite uh, viciously. Anyway, let's. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's March, and at the end of March, the Rarities LP comes out in the US. Yes. And you know it's interesting because we talked in the compilations episode that there's lots of repackaging going on in the late seventies, early eighties, and Rarities is something that perhaps should have been more important than another love songs compilation.
1: It's 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 a peculiar it's a peculiar album because there are. Two albums. There's a US version and there's a UK version. So yeah. they, whenever they boxed up all of the uh, the, the the official releases, they put in the CMI in the UK added. Rarities, so it had things like the german version of uh, i want to hold your hand mm-hmm. and she loves you and and various uh different takes things like that and they were absolutely adamant this is only ever going to be available in this box set you yeah. must shell out for this box set and then once the box set had sold out then they thought well we we'll just release this so that's where they learned to do that they, thing they've been doing <laughs> ever since exactly. uh, in in america of course what was appearing on the uk rarities uh, was comprised of quite a few American-only mixes, so that that wouldn't have worked in America mm-hmm. as a rarities album. So they 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 then produced this this, and it is actually very interesting. And if you do, I would recommend people go out and try and find it. It's, mm-hmm. it's um, you know, so you've got slightly different different take, different edit of Penny Lane. You've got a different edit of I Am the Walrus. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, they also make an entire track out of the final run-out <laughs> groove of Sgt. Pepper, which never appeared on the Sgt. Pepper... No, I didn't uh, know that till, yeah. uh, till a couple of years ago. So the they actually think, well, we can squeeze another uh, track. Yeah. That. So they just put that little piece of <laughs> gibberish.
0: That's the best bit of Sgt. Pepper. It is. It's yeah. the highlight. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because, you know, you talk about this kind of commodification of rock and roll that they're trying to... You know, there's the rock and roll memorabilia auctions. You know, we're starting to look at how do you repackage this material. Yeah. How do you repackage the stuff that's not the original stuff?
1: Exactly. And it's it's
0: it's all a bit amateurish because it's uncharted territory. But again, it's uncharted territory that has the Beatles name on it, which is what they were best at. So then we go into April 1980 and on the 11th of uh, April 1980, um, the best thing happens ever, which is the release of "Coming Up" by Paul McCartney, and. I've spoken about being a Paul fan. Uh, I think I might have mentioned that before. You
1: hide that. Well, it doesn't come across.
0: But I certainly think uh, coming up is a phenomenal achievement. And I'm talking about the studio version. Um, And uh, it's a single I love very much. And I I probably have a personal connection to it. Because even though I was a small child at the time, uh, it's the first time I saw Paul McCartney I saw the video on Kenny Everett's
1: video show Yeah, uh, and I, I went back and looked your uh, parents were allowing you to watch the Kenny Everett show
0: yeah I know and uh, that's a, a low so bar so I would have been too late
1: to call social <laughs> services <I laughs> that,
0: that was on the Kenny Everett video show on the 14th of April uh, 1980 I was probably watching that too and so we were probably watching that together and I remember thinking uh, you know this is a this is a fantastic thing. I was too young to realize that I needed to go and buy it or to what was going yeah. on, and it was only when I saw it again a few years so this, later. This is
1: the video where Paul appears, uh, multiple versions of himself. Yes,
0: and the, it's the Plastic Max. The Plastic Max, and he's dressed as Ron Mail uh, from Sparks, and he's yeah. dressed as Neil Young and Buddy Holly, and he's dressed as Beatle Paul. And it's a technologically quite sophisticated video. At the time, yeah. And is that a, is that a, a, a nod to, to the plastic, plastic owner
1: band? I wondered.
0: I would think that if you're us, you would say yes. But if you're Paul, you would say what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because they don't seem to think about this stuff no. as much as we do. But you know, coming up is uh, a great single, and it's one of these songs. I think that you know I personally think it's great because it's a great recording it's a great record it's a great record it's kind of flimsy almost in terms of the actual songwriting yeah uh, although we can come back to that in a sec um, but you know it's the actual recording where Paul is playing almost everything himself
1: it is it's it, and it's it, it's this uh, the, these kind of keyboards and uh, that 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 very modern sound for 19 and it's like nothing he has done before no and it's under the Paul McCartney
0: yeah. banner it's not yeah. under the Wings banner Although in the US it seemed as a little too far out there, and so a live version by Wings is put on the B side, yeah. and that gets flipped over to be the A side in the yeah. US, and that becomes number one. Uh, and that, yeah, yeah, and, and it, it can be a, 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 a you know. I've noticed on message boards and things you can find out where somebody's from by asking them what version of coming up do they like <laughs> you know the live version or the studio version um, but it's, 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 it's literally the Crossroads song where you know it's, it's like a metaphor wings are on one side yeah. this is how wings would do it Paul's on the other side saying well this is how Paul would do it and which uh, do you prefer you can decide which one you prefer but it's a it's a, a, a sensational song and there's a great cover version um, by the uh, lead singer of Hot Chip who put it out a few years ago and I'm embarrassed now because his name has just escaped my brain. Um, But it's well worth checking out where he slows it right down, plays it very acoustically, very straight and
1: actually you think, oh... In the style of a John Lewis ad.
0: (laughs) Oh, now you've ruined it. Um, But that video that... uh, Alexis Taylor, that's just... that's his name. Um, Very nice and, you know, Hot Chip also plug into their big McCartney Mm. 2 fans because they're the people who take another McCartney 2 track temporary secretary and put it into DJ sets Um, but that video as I said is on the Kenny Everett show on the 14th of April 1980 and the video is also seen uh, on Saturday Night Live on the 17th of May 1980 and you have to wonder maybe Lennon saw that video we know he heard the song we know he heard
1: the song uh, his uh, uh, assistant personal assistant uh, Fred Seaman who you know take everything he says with a pinch of salt uh, if you've read any of his books but he says that John heard the song on the radio Mm. uh, for the first time on the 13th of April which would have been two days after it was released. Okay. Um, And certainly Lennon Talks about uh, you know this is a this is a good piece of work is how he describes it. Yes, um, and I know you and I had that discussion where I was saying, oh well, maybe he heard the live, but he didn't version, hear the but live he version. Didn't. It was the studio version that yeah. he was particularly, uh, and he explicitly uh, said to. he yeah. loves
0: that crazy studio version. Yeah. And uh, so he hears that song, and he he still might have heard it a few seen it again a few weeks later on uh, on Saturday Night Live. We 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 don't know for sure, but you know it, it's it's possible. Um, and the thing I've I've wondered is. You know, did what happened? You know, coming up was a massive hit, and yeah. it was a great song. But did the publicity from January, after coming off the back mm. end of a very sort of beige nineteen seventy nine back to the egg, yeah. did the publicity in January put Paul McCartney back in the public consciousness? And people were like, they might have thought, oh, this is the song that this is his inspiration yeah. post Japan, even though it was
1: recorded before Japan. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, that that old chestnut about you know no such thing as bad publicity. You know, it's kind yeah. of maybe suddenly McCartney's a little bit. Edgy, yeah. You know, uh, Wings, nineteen seventy six, were a kind of hard and band. Yeah, uh, Wings over America. You know, very kind of, it's a it's a rock album. Yes. Then suddenly you, you've you got nineteen seventy eight. You've got London Town. A lot of keyboards. It's a it, that's a kind of mishmash of styles. But the, but the big hits mm-hmm. are with a little lock. Yeah. London Town. Mull of Kintyre yep. is is end of seventy seven. So that Wings have really become desperately uncool. Yes, and I mean, I remember buying London Town and being mocked mercilessly by everybody, <laughs> everybody in my class at school for 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 liking Paul McCartney and Wings. So they were deeply, deeply uncool. Uh, the kind of change, the harder edge of Back to the Egg, really hadn't mm-hmm. uh, reversed that or turned things around yeah. critically or commercially. So I think. Yeah, you know, I I suspect that publicity probably did him no harm. Yeah.
0: And so Lennon hears this song and, you know, there's a lot of other songs in the ether. I'm kind of looking at, you know, stuff that was out at the time, but... you know, like at the start of that year, you have hits on the radio like "Refugee" by Tom Petty. Billy Joel's "Glass Houses" comes out in March. Uh, Pete Townsend's "Empty Glass" is a is a big hit album uh, in 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 that springtime as well. Crazy little thing called Love. These are all big hits that are on the radio. We know John was also listening to Kate Bush and a few other people. Yeah,
1: he's 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 maybe not producing records, yeah. but he's listening. He is listening, he is and listening.
0: he's 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 reading about people. He's getting his Sparks, assistant. Big fan of Sparks. Well, who who isn't? and uh you know and, and he's listening to Paul and he's yeah. getting his assistant to pull these records so his his antenna is definitely up at this point in 1980 and all of these things eventually uh, come to a head for him but we are going to talk about those in the second part of our podcast on 1980 because it is such a huge year uh, we need to break this into two episodes so join us again on the next time we're going to talk about the arrest of 1980 uh please stay in touch with us in the usual places on Twitter at Pod. Uh, join the Facebook group look for Nothing Is Real on Facebook and uh, please leave a nice review with whatever uh, uh, podcast app or platform that you're listening to us on but for the moment uh, my name's Jason Carty my name's Stephen Cockcroft and join us again next time for the rest of 1980. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more.
1: Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.